Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 701 with Vanessa Bonds. Vanessa has some really cool research and insights associated with our influence and how people are more likely to say yes than we think they do. It's so good. So you'll learn one, why we end up underestimating the willingness to say yes. Two, how to get more comfortable with asking. And three, how to say no without feeling guilty or awkward. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or links to items we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep701. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep701. Now here is Vanessa's story. Vanessa Bonds is a social psychologist, an award-winning researcher and teacher, and a professional of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia University and an AB in psychology from Brown. Professor Bonds has been a visiting scholar at the NYU Stern School of Business and has taught at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, and her research has been published in top academic journals in psychology, management, and law, and featured by the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Economist, and more. Her first book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, will be published in September 2021. She lives in upstate New York with her husband and two daughters. Big thanks to Vanessa for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to her sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Vanessa. Vanessa, thanks for joining us here on How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And I'm curious, so you're a social psychologist, and that's one of my favorite types of guests. And I'm curious, how did growing up on a farm influence that world? Because I think of farms, I think of not so many people and more so animals. Did that provide any uh, insights or background for you to enter into social psychology? (laughs) You know, uh, unbelievably, it actually did. So I grew up on a bird farm and we had all sorts of birds, you know, pheasants and quail and peacocks and geese and chickens. And I would spend my time kind of sitting with my notebook, very Jane Goodall style, and just watching the birds and recording them and kind of watching their birdie behavior. And so, yes, there weren't humans that I was observing, but I was taking this sort of meticulous approach of studying behavior that is kind of funny now that I look back at these documents that I had of just all these bird behaviors that I would categorize. Is there a bird behavior most of us don't know about, but maybe would find interesting? Well, I will say if you didn't grow up on a farm, and I feel like anyone who did or grew up with chickens and roosters will will understand this. Roosters can be very protective 
And so I spent a lot of my high school years with my friends and I running from the door to the car before the rooster like saw us and started coming up to start pecking at our ankles. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, running away from roosters and their uh, territorial behavior is definitely a bird behavior. Okay, good to know. Thank you. Well, that comes in handy maybe in the future. And so let's talk about your book here. You have more influence than you think, how we underestimate our power of persuasion and why it matters. I'm curious, could you kick us off by sharing maybe one of the most surprising discoveries you've made about influence across your career studying it? I think this whole book is really a catalog of all the things that I found surprising uh, in my own research and in other people's research. And they're actually pieces of research that are the things that people have been surprised at when they try to influence other people. So, for example, my research is, is on asking people for things. And what I find is that when people go out and they ask people for things, they think they're more likely to be rejected than they actually are. And so what we do is we have participants in our studies make guesses about how many people they're going to have to ask to get someone to do a particular task. And then they go out and they ask people and we compare what they predicted to what actually happens. And what we find again and again is that people think it's going to be a lot harder to get people to do things than it actually is. And the thing that's been most surprising in that work is how far you can kind of push the effect. So for example, we started small. So when people went out and asked people to do things, they would ask people to fill out a survey. Then we had them ask to borrow people's cell phones. Then we had them ask for charitable donations. And then we started designing studies that we were sure could never work. Like we had them go out and ask people to vandalize library books by walking into a library and saying, hey, I'm playing a prank on my friend, but they know handwriting. Will you just write the word pickle and pen in this library book? And even in those extreme cases where you're asking people to do things they actually find pretty uncomfortable, they are more willing to agree to do those things than we expect. Well, so, <laughs> oh boy, there's so much here. <laughs> well, can you give us some numbers here in terms of writing pickle in a library book, for example? Mm -hmm. Just... How many percent of people will do that? Just for my own edification, I might need to draw on this knowledge someday. <laughs> what proportion of people will write pickle in a library book if I ask them to? Okay. So our participants, before they went out and made this request, they thought they'd have to ask about 11 people before three people would agree to vandalize a library book. In fact, they only had to ask fewer than five people to get three people to agree. So basically, more than half of the people they approached agreed to do this thing, even though they actually didn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is fascinating. And so then I'd love to frame up some additional numbers if you could. I remember I experienced some of this firsthand once when someone randomly reached out to me on LinkedIn and wanted to talk about a career in consulting. And I thought, well, I got some time. Let's go. Why not? And so I chatted with him. And then to my surprise, he had this very detailed notebook about all the people he contacted and how many people responded and all these things. It's like, can you tell me? Because like we had like no connection. We might have been in a LinkedIn group, which isn't the strongest of bonds in most groups, you know. And he went ahead and pulled the data or tabulated the data for me from his notebook. And like the number was 28% of the time, total strangers were willing to give him career advice when he asked. And I was blown away by how high that was. And you may not be <laughs> because you've seen it again and again that we do have more influence than you think. I'd like to get your take on those figures and how they compare with other kinds of compliance rates you've bumped into for different kinds of requests. 
Yeah, I'm impressed that's not a bad number for a forum like LinkedIn where it's all text-based because one of the things we look at is the difference between asking people face-to-face and asking people through like email or through some sort of messaging app. And we usually find that people are much less likely to agree over text requests. So that's really not a bad number. Uh, The 28%, it might have been because there was already this connection through LinkedIn. It's not just sort of a random email. But when we look face-to-face, so we have people ask uh, other people to do favors, you know, like the donation to charity or a survey, or for example, you know, walk them to a place they can't find at a location that's a few blocks away. And in those cases, we see compliance rates of about 50% on average. Mm -hmm. So really every other person that our participants ask is agreeing. And it's twice as many as they expect to be agreeing. Yeah. Okay. Well... Can you unpack that then? So that is quite an interesting finding. We do have more influence than we think. When we ask, we'll get yeses more than we think we will. So then what are the implications of that in terms of career? Should we just ask a whole lot more or how should we think about this? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of implications, but you kind of first have to step back and think, okay, what's going on here, right? To be able to decide, should I just use this sort of superpower to ask people and get what I want, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is, I'll set sort of the context that when we bring participants into the lab to do this, they hate it. They don't want to go out and ask people for things because we all hate asking. And so they have this sort of just intense fear about it. They go out and they do it and they find it much easier than they expect. And then they come back into the lab and they're like bound back in and they're so happy. And their takeaway is people are just so nice. They're so much nicer than I thought. Mm -hmm. And I will say there is research that shows that, that we underestimate other people's sort of pro-social inclinations and how helpful they'll be. But what we don't really tell our participants at that point in time is that what we find is that the reason people agree more than we expect is that it's really hard for someone to say no. It's not necessarily that people are super excited to agree, although they quickly sort of reframe the situation to feel good about themselves. It's that when someone's standing in front of you asking for something, it's really awkward and uncomfortable and you have to come up with the words and excuse to say no. And it's often just easier to go ahead and agree. Mm -hmm. And so once you sort of know that that's what's going on, you can think about sort of how to use this, again, sort of latent superpower that when you ask for things, people are more likely to do them for you than you think. Do you really want to use it all the time? if people are complying in part because they feel uncomfortable saying no? Or do you want to sort of think about when it would be most useful and then use it best in that way? And so I'm happy to talk about some ways in which it makes asking easier and then some other ways in which it might make us want to double check and kind of reconsider what we're really asking for. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, yes, I'd love to hear all your perspective in terms of how to think about the ask in terms of when should we ask and how should we ask optimally and Lay it on us. Yeah, sure. So when we sort of think about the ask, many of us, again, it's a it's a pretty anxiety-provoking thing to have to ask someone for something. And we often think that we're sort of in an uphill battle, that the other person is sort of inclined to say no, and we're fighting that tendency. But in fact, as I said, it's actually hard for people to say no. People's default Research show like when we mindlessly just comply with a request, people's default is actually to say yes, not no. The easier thing to do is to just go along with what we're being asked. And because of that, 
when we ask for things, we often don't have to put the kind of sort of extraordinary effort we put into uh, into making those requests. So for example, people will write out this long-winded email, laying out all these rationales for why they're asking someone for a favor, right? And apologize a thousand times and have their friends reread it a thousand times. And then get back, you know, a quick response that's like, sure. (laughs) Or, you know, come up with the exact way to ask in person and someone's like, okay. And we don't really have to put all that sort of exorbitant effort into these things because people are actually inclined to say yes. Another sort of piece of this is that because we think that people are less likely to agree than they actually are, we kind of negotiate ourselves down before we ask for something. We think that, okay, well, if I ask for something just a little bit smaller, maybe that they'll be more likely to agree and I won't be rejected. But we actually find in our studies that the size of the request doesn't make as big of a a difference as we think. And so asking for something bigger or smaller it's still hard to say no. It's still, you know, makes someone feel guilty saying no. It's still hard to find the words. And so instead of sort of negotiating ourselves down before we ask for something, we should really assume there's a good chance I'm going to get what I actually need or want. So I should ask for that before I start asking for less before I even do the first ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, with all these things, is there a different kind of like mode our brains go into in terms of like, tell me if this is accurate. Are we sort of talking about sort of favor mode as distinct from sales mode? I think in some ways we feel readily comfortable if someone is asking us for money for a product or service. Uh, I think we feel great about saying no. I don't know. It seems like there's less remorse or guilt or discomfort associated with saying, no, I don't want that. And then that's that. What's your take here? I think in some cases, you know, when people ask us for a favor, sure, there's this extra element that, you know, I feel like a jerk if I say no, because it's going to reflect on sort of whether I'm a good person or not. So there is this like added layer of this inclination to say yes. So it's not just because it's hard to say no. It's also because I want to look and feel like a good person. And I want to help this other person out, right, who need who is in a bind. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, even with like a sales pitch, for example, imagine this happens to us all the time. You know, you get a knock on the door when you're home and someone's like asking you to sign a petition or sign up for something and you open that door and they're making that request. It's not that easy to say no, right? Like you're trying to find the words. It's such an awkward interaction. You feel really awkward and guilty and you might get to that no eventually, but it's a lot harder than we tend to think in the abstract. Yeah. It's funny because this happened a couple of times with, um, I think there's like electricity deregulation. These guys really came out again and again. And I don't know, that might be legitimate. It may not be. But like, hey, could you show me your electricity bill? Because, well, actually, there's the transmission fee, but there's also this fee. And we can get this fee down to, and I was like, I never ever even read my electricity bill. I just give them the money they say they need from me. I don't know who you are. And this kind of sounds like a scam. So I'm thinking these things. But you're right. I won't say that. I won't say, I think you're lying to me and I want you to go immediately, (laughs) even though that's what I'm feeling and thinking inside. And maybe they're not, I don't know the details of the company, but so you're right. I am not delivering the full candid blunt truth of my thoughts and feelings on the matter to this person who I don't even know. Yeah. And if you have the chance to avoid that awkward interaction or not have to say no, research also Mm -hmm. shows that people really jump on that. So we've tried to hide. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So there's research actually showing that if you give someone a heads up before they show up at your door, that people are less likely to open the door because they don't want to even have the interaction where they have to say no. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is just kind of mind bending. All right. So keep talking here. So we don't need to plan a whole lot with regard to perfectly structuring the request in order to get compliance because the wind is at our backs and we can feel a dose of confidence just given these psychological facts on the ground. So then is there anything you do recommend that we do in order to make our requests optimally? Yeah. As you said, I think that's a great way to say it. The wind really is on our backs, right? The stars are kind of aligned for the yes. So I think you want to reframe things that way. But there are still things that you could kind of do wrong to disrupt that sort of state of affairs. So one of them is not acting, asking directly. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when we ask people what they think is going to be the most effective way to ask, we often find that people think that hinting or sort of beating around the bush, like I could really use help with this thing is the better way to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they think it's the more polite way. But what we find is that, of course, not surprisingly, you know, people are much less likely to agree if you're not actually asking them a question, if you're just kind of hinting and hoping that they'll volunteer. And so actually making that request direct and saying, will you do this thing makes it harder for them to say no and also clearer in what you want. And so that's one thing is to be direct when you're making a request, even if you don't have this, you know, huge speech that you're delivering, but just make it clear, like, will you do this thing? And the other one goes back to asking in person. So again, I think we think that crafting the perfect email so we can put all our arguments out there and, you know, say it exactly right so someone can't say no. It's actually pretty easy to say no to an email, no matter how perfectly crafted it is. It's a lot harder to say no to someone. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at it anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a lot harder to ignore or say no to someone who's standing in front of you. And I think that we often forget that. We forget that our presence matters more than the specific words we're saying half the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's super. And then tell us then about the implications of people say yes, even though their heart isn't into it. How does that mean we should play the asking game optimally in a professional environment? Yeah, this is a really important sort of aspect of understanding that mechanism, that reason that people say yes, and that it's not always enthusiastic. Sometimes it's because it's so hard to say no. And that really means that instead of focusing so much on exactly how to get people to say yes, we should kind of assume that there's a good chance they're going to say yes and make sure we're asking for things that are okay and appropriate and things that we don't want someone to feel obligated to agree to. So, for example, we started with these favor requests when we had people make requests, and then we moved on to things like the vandalism study. And that was to kind of show it's not just about asking for favors, it's also asking for anything, including things that people don't really want to do or make them uncomfortable. We sort of extended that research to making romantic advances at work. And so we've also shown that when people ask someone out uh, on a date, for example, at work Mm -hmm. who isn't interested in them, we tend to underestimate how hard it is for that person to say no to us. And we underestimate how uncomfortable of a situation that creates for that person (laughs) that they then have to sort of cope with. So we think, for example, when we asked people who had been rejected by someone at work, they thought it was pretty easy for them to reject them and that they didn't really do anything different afterwards. But when we asked people 
who rejected someone they weren't interested in at work, they said that it was really uncomfortable to say no. And then they started avoiding that person. You know, they did things differently. They avoided that person's contacts and they kind of did adjust their behavior in all these potentially meaningful ways. And so sort of knowing that asking for things directly does put people sort of on the spot. And sometimes it's okay if we're asking for something good that makes everybody feel good. But you also want to kind of think twice about the things you're asking for. Because if you're asking, for example, a subordinate to do something that could be a little bit sketchy or inappropriate, or even a colleague for those things, it's actually a lot harder for them to come out and say, I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable in that with that uh, than we tend to think. Right. Okay. Excellent. Well, I'm also intrigued as you talk about these studies where you say, okay, guys, you're going to go ask people to vandalize library books. And they go, oh, no, I don't want to. So I guess you've seen this cycle many, many, many times of folks feeling the nerves, the apprehension associated with just doing the asking. So tell us, what are some of the patterns or best practices associated with if we've got a case of the nerves and some reluctance to do some asking, how do we get over it? Yeah. um, And you're right. I've seen this so many times. The last time I calculated, our participants had asked 15,000 people different uh, requests. So we see it all the time. And I'd say, first of all, that just asking more makes you more comfortable with asking. And it does sort of help you to see that people don't get as upset as we think they will. You know, people don't judge us as harshly as we think they will. And they're even more likely to say yes than we think they will be. And so getting that practice, particularly when we're asking for things, again, that are beneficial to everybody, like favor requests um, and things that bring people closer together, can really help you get more comfortable with asking. So in the book, I talk about this thing called rejection therapy that was started by Jason Comley. And then Zha Zhang got into it and sort of made it a bigger thing. But it's basically the idea is that you're supposed to try to get rejected every day. And Jason Comley came up with all these kind of random things that you go out and you ask people. So for example, ask somebody to race you down the street, just a random stranger. Go up to random strangers and ask them to give you a compliment. Ask a police officer if you can sit in their car. Just all sorts of random requests. And the thinking is that these requests are supposed to be chances to get rejected so that you aren't so worried about rejection. But Zha Zhang, who kind of documented his experience with rejection therapy on his blog, showed that actually when he asked a lot of these things, a lot of people were agreeing. And so mm-hmm. he partly was getting over rejection. He partly was learning that rejection is less likely than you think. And he really kind of saw this as a major intervention and really an exposure therapy of getting over this kind of fear of asking. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay. That sounds like that'll do it. And then I'm guessing it might be prudent to start small and get more challenging as you go down the path. Any starter asks that are great for people if they're really feeling skittish? Sure. I mean, simple things right now. I don't know how people feel about asking someone for like a piece of gum or something little like that directions. Mm -hmm. Just anything where you kind of have to interrupt someone and actually make that ask. And so, for example, Just to give you another sort of sense of how hard people find that, and another set of studies I talk about in the book, which gets away from the asking piece, we also have people go up to strangers and give them compliments. And so in some ways, it's a similar setup, right? They come into the lab, they go out onto campus, and they go up to people and say, you know, excuse me, I really like your shirt. 
and we tell them what, what to compliment the person on. But there's the same sort of hesitation to go up to a stranger, interrupt whatever they're doing, make them interact with you. And our participants actually think that complimenting someone, literally making them feel good with a compliment is going to annoy them. And so there is a lot of sort of tension that we feel and anxiety we feel about just going up to strangers and initiating a conversation or a request or even a compliment. And so I'd say you could even start if you're not just asking for things, right? You could ask for, as I said, direction, something small, piece of gum. You could even start by going up and giving random strangers compliments and sort of exercise that muscle of just interacting with people more. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Especially as we come out of the pandemic and we forget what it's like to interact with other people. Well, and I guess I'm also curious if you've gained a a deep understanding of our tendency to not want to say no. Say no is a completely different skill, but it sounds like you know a lot about it. So I've got to ask, how can we say no better, given that you have an understanding of these psychological forces within us? Yeah, absolutely. So I get asked this a lot because so much of my research is about how hard it is to say no, right? And how hard it is for other people to say no to us. But of course, we also experience that. And so I basically give the opposite instructions for people who want to say no as I give to people who want to ask and get a yes, right? So for one, it's really hard to say no in person. And so if someone's asking you something for in person or you for something in person, you can ask them, you know, to follow up over email or some sort of way that makes it easier for you to say no. So, for example, if someone's like, oh, you know, I'd really like you to be part of this committee that no one wants to be part of. You can say, "Okay, I'll think about it. Can you just follow up with me over email and I'll get back to you? And what that does is it buys you the space so that you have time to think of what to say, right? A lot of it is in the moment, what am I even going to say? Do I have a good excuse? You know, it might not be a particularly strong excuse and I'd like to come up with a better one. But also it's just really hard in that moment to say no to someone's face. And so you buy yourself that space if you kind of create that distance through the email so you can think of what to say. You have time to formulate your words and whatever excuse you want to use. And you don't have to say no to somebody's face. Uh Another sort of recommendation I often give is to blame somebody else. So often we hate rejecting people and saying no because we feel like it looks bad in us and that we're somehow conveying something about our relationship to that other person. And the more that you can sort of put the pressure off of you and the relationship with that person asking, the better. So if you say, you know, I can't do that because I have this other obligation, this sort of external attribution, because somebody else wouldn't be happy if I was doing that. Someone else asked me to do something else. Anything that sort of points your reason for saying no away from that immediate relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, Vanessa, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I would say the one thing, you know, I kind of focused on experience as a way to learn about asking. But one thing I do talk about in the book is that we also need to sort of reflect on those experiences, right? So just asking a bunch of people is not the end-all be-all. We also have to sort of think about what those people are really truly feeling and get their perspective and sort of get out of our own heads and be able to recognize the impact we're having on them and on the situation. And so as much as I love these sort of experiential sort of challenges that we give people, it also takes a little bit more than that to sort of integrate the knowledge and really sort of learn to recognize your influence. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to 
that world of empathy and recognizing what someone else is feeling and how that maps to our own influence, do you have any particular pro tips on, I don't know if it's like categorizing or gathering intel on what are the hot buttons for somebody? How do you think about knowing your persuasive target all the more such that you are asking, well, while not going overboard with thousands of revisions, <laughs> like we talked about before? Yeah. Um, so Nick Epley and his colleagues uh, have looked at the difference between taking perspective and getting perspective. So one thing that people try to do when they're trying to figure out, like, what can I really do that will resonate with this other person? How can I influence someone? What impact am I having on them? We try to take their perspective. And what that really means is we try to figure out what's going on in their head, but we do it by searching our own heads, right? We're like, what would that person think? And we base it on stereotypes of that person or what we've seen that person do in the past. And what they talk about is that actually instructing people to try to take someone else's perspective isn't actually a way to make people more accurate at understanding what someone else is thinking and feeling. And instead you need to, what they call get perspective. And it's actually pretty simple to get someone's perspective. And that is actually asking them, right? So actually talking to them and saying, what do you care about? What do you want? And often we forget how easy it is to just actually come out and ask someone and how open someone is likely to be and how the things they're likely to tell us that then we can sort of play off. So for example, one thing we talk about in my negotiation class is, you know, you can ask people, what do you really care about here? What are your values? And then when you actually make an ask during the negotiation, you mirror those values. You told me that this is what you cared about. So this is a way to meet those values, for example. Mm -hmm. All right. Perfect. Well, now can you tell me a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. Actually, um, this fits really well with what we were just talking about. So my colleague recently reminded me of a famous quote by Kurt Lewin, who was a big psychologist back in his day. Experience alone does not create knowledge. And so it really gets at what we were just talking about, that we kind of hold up experiences as pinnacle, right? That once you experience something, you've learned something profound, and now you understand it in this way that people who only imagine it couldn't possibly understand. But in fact, lots of times when we have an experience, you know, we have our own very specific experience that might not match other people's. We still need to, to understand what other people are experiencing. We still need to try to reflect on that experience and how it might be different from somebody else and gather information about other people's experiences. For example, there's research showing that People who got divorced assume that other people who are getting divorced are having the same experience that they did. But that's not always true, right? Other people have a totally different experience with the same sort of life event. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically this idea that experience is great, but you have to integrate your experiences with knowledge and with an understanding of the rest of the world. All right. And could you share a favorite study? Sure. Actually, this is not a study, but it's a reinterpretation of a bunch of famous studies. Okay. So I have this favorite paper. It's been my favorite paper for almost 20 years by Sabini, Seatman, and Stein called The Really Fundamental Attribution Error. And what it does is it revisits these classic social psychology studies like the Milgram study, where an experimenter is asking someone to shock another person, the bystander intervention studies, where people don't want to get up and tell the experimenter that smoke is rising in the room because everyone else in the room is sitting calmly. And so these have been classically taught in any intro psych class or social psychology class that someone's taken. They're usually taught as displaying the power of the situation, that we basically underestimate 
how powerful situations are and how, you know, whatever we want to do as individuals is kind of washed away by the power of the situation. We underestimate that. But this paper reinterprets all of that as the power of embarrassment. Mm. That, in fact, people sat there shocking this other person because they felt too uncomfortable and embarrassed to challenge the experimenter who was standing right there. And people sat there letting a room fill up with smoke and didn't say anything because everyone else was sitting there looking calm and they didn't want to look like fools by standing up and making a big deal out of it. And so I just have always been fascinated by this idea that embarrassment can play this huge role in so many of our behaviors. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? I only read it this past year, but it's quickly become my favorite book is Anne Lamont's Bird by Bird. Oh, yeah. It's ostensibly a book about writing, but it's really more of a book about life, but also writing. And it's just so funny and just emotionally resonant and actually a really great book about writing as well. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I'd say just a pen and a notebook. I am constantly on a walk and coming up with an idea or, you know, in the middle of the night when I'm trying to sleep, I come up with an idea and just having a notebook nearby to jot things down is the best thing, the best tool, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? Going on long thinking walks. I try to go for a walk every night after the kids go to bed. I try to walk around for like an hour and just think. And it's very calming. And I come up with a lot of ideas that way as well. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to resonate and get quoted back to you often? You know, it's this piece about asking in person that I think usually resonates with people the most. Because I think that's a lot of people struggle with how to ask, the best way to ask. Should I write an email? What's, you know, And a lot of us gravitate towards that because it's kind of easier to be rejected over email if you're going to be rejected. But People find it really helpful when I talk about the fact that asking in person makes such a big difference. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So I have my website, which is Vanessa Bonds. That's B-O-H-N-S dot com. And I'm also at Prof Bonds at Twitter. Mm -hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think, you know, you hear this phrase, start from a place of yes all the time. And I kind of like the idea of of a play on that, where it's assume that other people are starting from a place of yes, right? So instead of assuming that other people are immediately going to say no or reject things that you ask for or arguments you make, assume they actually are going to be pretty receptive and then sort of reframe whatever you're going to pitch or ask for accordingly. All right. Vanessa, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck in all of your influencing ways. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Boy, it is such a nice reframe to know that we actually have the advantage when we make a request for something. And I think that just that knowledge in and of itself can dissipate a whole lot of the fear, consternation, anxiety, reluctance of making those requests. So I love it, as well as those tips associated with, hey, do it in person, doing it directly. So useful. And it's great to hear an authoritative voice who's researched this stuff sort of speak truth when you're scared, it's easier to do it not in person. It's easier to beat around the bush or, or you feel like it's less intense. But in fact, to maximize your odds of a yes, do just what Vanessa said. So great stuff. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep701. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. 
you can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.